Good evening. Thank you for joining us. Um, my name is Rosemary Eldridge. I'm the Director of Programs and Communications here at the Catholic Information Center. And I want to thank you all so much for joining us for tonight's event. What is Christian and Christianity? Featuring Father Lee Fangmeyer, Catherine Jean Lopez, and Helen Whitney. This event is co-sponsored by the Abbasette Forum, an organization that seeks to preserve and extend Monsignor Lorenzo Abbasette's legacy through a series of initiatives beginning with the collection, archiving, and publication of his collected works. And with that, please join me in welcoming Lisa Lacona, editor for Saints at Magnificat and tonight's moderator. She will tell you more about the Abbasette Forum and give the formal inductions for our wonderful speakers tonight. Thank you so much. Good evening. Um, as you just heard, my name is Lisa Lacona, and on behalf of the Albacete Forum and the Catholic Information Center, I welcome you to this evening's event, What is Christian in Christianity? A discussion of the continued impact of the writings and presence of Monsignor Lorenzo Albacete. I'm here this evening as a member of the Albacete Forum, which is really a group of friends who have come together to preserve and extend Lorenzo Albacete's legacy through the, through the archiving and publication of his collected works, as well as a series of initiatives like this one. Inspired by Monsignor's characteristic honesty and rigor in front of reality, his sense of humor, and his preference for lived experience over theory, we at the Albacete Forum seek to reopen the very dialogues that Monsignor himself began with scientists, cultural figures, and others who pursue truth, beauty, and justice. We hope to revisit Albacete's work in the light of the most urgent problems and the questions that we face today. And on a personal note, personal note I am deeply grateful to have been asked to serve as monitor, moderator for this event. Just over 28 years ago, I walked into the classroom of the Dominican House of Studies on Michigan Avenue, where Monsignor Abbasete was teaching the course on what we then called the Wednesday Catechesis, which is known today as the Theology of the Body, Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. I'd only been in this class a short time when I realized that something extraordinary was happening. Monsignor Abbasete did not know canned expressions of Christianity. He never fed us a party line. Everything with Monsignor was fresh, raw, and unpredictable. And in this way, he witnessed to that most fresh, raw, and unpredictable of events, the entrance of the eternal word into human flesh. We were fond at that time of talking about how Hans Urs von Balthasar had called for a theology on its knees. And in Monsignor, we had theology smoking a cigarette and eating a jelly donut. His lectures were at turns irreverent, funny, serious, and, to use his own phrase, mystical. Like so many, I was permanently changed by my encounter with him. Tonight, we are here in the same city where Monsignor studied space science and applied physics and landed his first job at the nearby Naval Ordnance Laboratory, where he answered a call to become a diocesan priest after having been ordained in his native Puerto Rico, where he met Pope St. John Paul II for the first time, a story he loved to tell us when we were students, and where he served for many years as a founding professor of the Pope John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family. Here, in the heart of the nation's capital, it seems fitting that we take this moment to consider what Monsignor Abbasete's writings and perspective can offer in this current moment to the world of culture, politics, and religion. 
Following Monsignor, we seek to go to the heart of what is Christian in Christianity. To help us ponder these questions, we have brought together a really wonderful panel. Each in their own way brings a different perspective to our conversation. And I have to say for my own part that I had wonderful conversations with all three of them this week, and I'm very much looking forward to their contributions. Our first panelist is Oscar-nominated Emmy and Peabody Award-winning film producer, director, and writer Helen Whitney. Helen has been a prolific creator of documentaries and feature films, among them John Paul II, The Millennial Pope, The Mormons, Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero, Forgiveness, A Time to Love and A Time to Hate, and Into the Night, Portraits of Life and Death. Helen has received an Academy Award nomination, the Humanitas Prize, the Emmy, the DuPont Columbia Journalism Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award for Excellence in Journalism, the Directors Guild Award, the Writers Guild Award, and many other recognitions for her work. Our second panelist will be Catherine Jean Lopez. Catherine is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, where she directs the Center for Religion, Culture, and Civil Society, an editor-at-large of National Review. She is also a nationally syndicated columnist with Andrews McMeal Universal. Catherine has been published by a wide variety of publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, America, Stars and Stripes, the National Catholic Register, and First Things. She is a columnist for our Sunday Visitors Newsweekly and on the editorial advisory board of Angelus, where she contributes regularly and co-author of the book, How to Defend the Faith Without Raising Your Voice. She was awarded the annual Washington Women in Journalism Award for Outstanding Journalism in the Periodic Press from CQ Roll Call in 2016 for writing about Christian genocide and persecution, and at the opening mass of the Year of Faith in Rome in October 2012, Pope Benedict the Sixth, <laughs> presented her with a message to women throughout the world. And um, you probably also know that Catherine is the author of A Year with the Mystics. And I have to say that after our conversation with her, I went right away and downloaded that on my Kindle. I'm really excited to get, that, get started with it. And finally, we'll have Father Lee. Father Lee Fangmeyer is a native of the Washington, D.C. area, growing up in Maryland. He received his Bachelor of Arts from the University of Maryland and entered Mount St. Mary Seminary in 1985. He was ordained to the priesthood in 1989 for the Archdiocese of Washington. His assignments include the Shrine of St. Jude, Executive Director of the Office of Youth Ministry, CYO, Pastor of St. Francis of Assisi in Durwood, Maryland, St. Michael's in Ridge, Maryland, and most recently, the pastor of Mother Seton Parish in Germantown. Father Lee met the ecclesial movement of communal liberation in the late 1990s, and in the early 2000s, asked to belong to the Fraternity of Communion and Liberation. And with that, I'm going to hand things over to Helen. Well, greetings, everyone. I met Lorenzo Albacetti in 1997, and it was truly, and you'll hear this throughout the evening, a life-changing experience in all ways, professionally, personally, and spiritually. And I'm only going to touch on a few of these transformational moments because of the pressure of time tonight. I believe that Lorenzo's own words and inimitable, powerful presence 
should take precedence over my own recollections. So my introduction is going to be brief, and instead I'm going to screen at the end of it a few of the many, I think unforgettable, Lorenzo moments that I was able to capture on film. In my first encounter with Lorenzo many years ago, I didn't even experience the full force of his personality because it was on the telephone, yet he was still unforgettable. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> it was a particularly fraught moment in my life. I had spent at least four frustrating months doing research on John Paul II for a PBS frontline documentary. The language of the Pope's admirers and of his detractors was so doctrinaire on both sides, you know, veering between piety and hagiography on one side and a reflexive left-wing critique on the other, and so that the man who emerged, at least for me at that point in time, was an abstraction, inaccessible and uninteresting. I was close to pulling out of the film, uh, but a Catholic friend of mine said, wait, just wait, talk to Monsignor Lorenzo Albacetti, just talk to him before you make up your mind. He knew the Pope when he was Archbishop in Krakow and also when this when he came to uh, Washington and to and really sort of hung out, really Lorenzo hung out with him as his chauffeur for, for quite a while in 1974. So I couldn't imagine what this Monsignor could tell me that would make me sort of walk back into the film, but I called him nonetheless. Three hours later, we were still on the phone, laughing, talking, moving from the sublime to the ridiculous, from the personal to the metaphysical, from the best Italian food in the West Village to the complexities and contradictions of John Paul II. By the end of, my, of the conversation, I was back in the film, and for the next three years, I traveled the world in search of Lorenzo's Pope. And of course, Lorenzo's portrait of John Paul II was like no other. It was richly layered, complicated, filled with telling detail, uh, and it also recognized darkness as well as light. Lorenzo used to say, in fact, with delight the, about the Pope, he is a, this man is a tower of contradictions. It was a portrait that said as much about Lorenzo as it did about the Pope. Why? Because Lorenzo, as we all know in this room, reveled in complexity, in nuance, in shadow, in irreverence, and above all, in contradiction. And it is these elements that Lorenzo believed that make us all so intensely human. So my friendship with Lorenzo began with the Pope, and since then it seemed that we never stopped talking, usually late at night, but certainly over many meals, about everything about our childhoods, about his cherished brother, about my divorce, about his tense relationship to Cardinal Egan, uh, about church politics, world politics, books, music, about his daily questioning about his own faith and my own struggles with faith. His ability to make me doubt my doubt was arguably one of his greatest gifts to me. So many stories, so many conversations, only one more. On the eve of Dennis Potter's death, the BBC did an extraordinary interview with this great English writer. I invited about 80 people to my living room. I have a large living room, including Lorenza, to come and screen this interview. Potter was, if you know his work and know him, was 
a sentimental but not a brittle atheist. Uh, he was, uh, and he was facing death without religious consolation or complaint. He was also expressing an avidity towards the daily wonders of life and grief over losing his ability to write about it. In fact, he refused all morphine during that interview so he could write to the very end, and he did die a day or two later. There was a stunned silence in my living room when the 90-minute interview came to a finish. We all knew that this vibrant, charismatic Dennis Potter would soon be dead. A Catholic friend in, in my living room in the audience asked Lorenzo to speak, for she was yearning for comfort. And if any felt in that living room that, that evening that Lorenzo, who was the only cleric in the room, was going to throw us easy consolation, they were wrong. It is impossible to paraphrase his eloquence and his bluntness, but I did take notes. And basically he said, and I quote him, I cannot offer you comfort because I need comfort. Yes, death is an outrage. I'm against it. Why? Because we'll never know this remarkable man. He is gone. Death is tragic. We are not created to die, is all Lorenzo, but to live. And I want to sit quietly and with this reality for a while and not soften it for you. Later on tonight, I can talk about my belief in the life to come, in the reality of resurrection, a stupendous claim I know, but one I believe, but not now. People stayed for hours, uh, really, in hopes of talking to him, and Lorenzo found a comfortable position on the couch. <laughs> you can just see it. Cradling a plate piled high <laughs> with food <laughs> and was surrounded by a sort of rich mixture of intellectual and spiritual life in New York. Atheists, agnostics, devoted believers, traditional Catholics, secular Jews, a few Buddhists, and a few New Age seekers. All of them were wrapped as Lorenzo reflected on what he called, described a phrase you all know well of his, the great mystery. Lorenzo never tried, and he didn't try that evening, to make Christianity's claims palatable. And when pressed to do so, he would frequently invoke Flannery O'Connor's famous retort about the Eucharist. If it's a symbol, then to hell with it. At the same time, Lorenzo believed, passionately, that faith is found in everyday life. And these ordinary experiences of joy, of ecstasy, of mystery, point us to a divine reality. They were true signals of transcendence. His audiences in America were as varied and as rapt as the one inside my living room. In fact, I believe his true missionary work was to the secular world. He was a kind of St. Paul to the unbelievers, to the disenchanted, to the seekers. Through his wit and sophistication, through his eloquence rooted in a deep understanding of the human comedy, he was a bridge to this world. He made us doubt our doubt. He was utterly unique. Sadly, there have been no other Lorenzos, at least in my life. I felt that I was known by Lorenzo in a way that one is rarely known in this busy, bustling world that can also be inattentive and occasionally unfeeling. Without him here to reassure me, I do fear that our separation now is final. 
but I can almost hear him inside me at the same time saying, as he often did, Helen, death is not the final word. The essential point of this religion I have given my life to is that it has narrowed the mystery to one man in history. This is the original scandal. Our savior is a failed Palestinian wandering around the Palestinian countryside, and I want him, not abstractions, not theology, to be with me when I die. And I believe he was. So now I would like to screen just a small assembly of some of Lorenzo's great moments in, in some of my documentaries. And, uh, and I hope you, you respond to them as, as I have and so many people have. Thank you. This millennium, the question of faith should have died. Faith has never been so assaulted as it has been in our time. He knows we are a people numbed by evil, seduced by a false reason, overwhelmed by science. And even so, our yearning remains. To the Pope, the science and the wonder it evokes in us is not an obstacle to believe, but a privileged path to it. John Paul II urges us to look beyond our intellectual atheism, because reason which limits man to the visible world will kill faith. Our yearning for God in whatever form, in the ocean or in the swell of music, suggests that we already have more faith than we know. But the ache is only a first step. What would ask us to open ourselves to a more wrenching experience. For some, suffering is the crucible where real faith is born. For others, suffering is where believing ends. I think I learnt about sanctity when I went to Ethiopia in 84, 85. And I saw people whose lives are profoundly religious, who never take a breath without consecrating it to God or Our Lady or someone, for whom every day it has a place on the liturgical calendar. To see these people coping with the huge humiliation of famine, because I think people who are not farmers don't realize that famine is the ultimate failure for a farmer. It's an utter humiliation and bestialization. 
But these people under this pressure behaved like angels. I mean, to me, they really were, you know, garbed in celestial light. It's hard to think of it without rage against God, you see, because they were his fools. I mean, that's what happened there. Those people followed their their religious ritual into the worst kind of squalor you can imagine so that the bodies were always beautifully washed they were beautifully clad in the people's last white cotton garments and they were laid in their shelf tombs as if they were precious things to rise again on the last day and if you don't believe that there's a last day or that they'll rise or that there's any recompense for these lives of unremitting self-denial then you you cannot i mean if god exists i'm against him this is what he would say to someone whose whose experience of suffering is has become an obsessive question uh, you know he would say no 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 I, i have no consolation my urge is Don't be afraid. Continue questioning. Take the question as far as it goes. Let it become a cry. Let it become a cry. Even if it's a cry of hatred, a cry of rebellion, a cry of, of rejection, then say that cry. Say it because you are this step away from faith. For the Pope... This is not the last moment in the lives of those victims. United with Christ, those will rise again. Life will be stronger than death. This is for the Pope as a conviction as certain as that the fact that the sun will rise tomorrow. placed faith at the center of the agenda. In the end, though, he knows that all he has been sent to do is to put the issue before us, to make the proposal with the urgency of every fiber of his being. Believe, do not be afraid to believe, his very first words as a Pope. Do not be afraid. It will take nothing from you. But in the end, it can only be a proposal. The greatness and the mystery is our freedom. We can accept it. We can move on to something else. I don't think he knows what will be the case.
Throughout time, religion has been a source of grace and consolation, and also of violence and divisiveness. Since September 11th, many are asking with urgency and even anger, how can such things be done in the name of God? From the first moment, I looked into that horror on September 11th, into that fireball, into that explosion of horror. I knew it. I knew it before anything was said about those who did it or why. I recognize an old companion. <laughs> I recognize religion. Look, I am a priest for over 30 years. Religion is my life, it's my vocation. It's my existence. I'll give my life for it. I hope to have the courage. Therefore, I know it. And I know and recognize that day that the same force, energy, sense, instinct, whatever, passion, because religion can be a passion, same passion that motivates religious people to do great things is the same one that that day brought all that destruction. When they said that the people who did it did it in the name of God, I in the slightest bit surprise. It only confirmed what I knew. I recognize it. I recognize this thirst, this demand for the absolute. Because if you don't if you don't hang on to to the unchanging, to the absolute, to that which cannot disappear, you might disappear. recognize that this this thirst for the never ending, the permanent the the oneness of all things this intolerance or fear of diversity, that which is different these are characteristics of religion and I knew that that force take you to do great things but I knew that there was no greater and more destructive force on the surface of this earth than the religious passion one of the most impossible and memorable images of that day were people leaping out of the windows, being forced out by the fire behind them, driving them, herding them 
out the windows and to see that image of two people, co-workers, strangers, I had no idea, but that not knowing made it all the more poignant for reaching out for somebody's hand to take your last step, that you would end your life in the hands of a stranger, plummeting thousands of feet to your death. I think that the power of that image is it doesn't give an answer. It takes us in two opposing directions. On the one hand, we are all alone at the end. Life is fleeting. There's no one to help us when we face the abyss. And there wasn't. No one came for them. And on the other hand, they reached for each other. They said that in that moment when they're facing the absolute ultimate, there are other human beings to reach out, to be there, to help them, to help us. To me, it just seemed the bleakest possible image of the whole thing. Actually, I couldn't find a scrap of hope in it. What I saw was utter desperation, jumping to certain death rather than dying in pain in a fire. It spoke to me of sheer panic, humans brought to the sort of furthest edge of um, despair. I found no hope in that at all. If there is a God, he's a very indifferent God. A couple leap from the South Tower, hand in hand. They reach for each other, and their hands met, and they jumped. Try to whisper prayers for the sudden dead and the harrowed families of the dead and the screaming souls of the murderers, but I keep coming back to his hand and her hand, nestled in each other with such extraordinary, ordinary, naked love. It's the most powerful prayer I can imagine, the most eloquent, the most graceful. everything we're capable of against horror and loss and tragedy. It's what makes me believe that we're not fools to believe in God. It's to believe that human beings have greatness and holiness within them like seeds that open only under great fire. To believe that who we are persists past what we were. against evil evidence hourly that love is why we are here. To me that image is an inescapable provocation. This gesture, this holding of hands in the midst of that horror, it embodies what September 11 was all about. The image confronts us with a need to make a judgment, a choice. Does it show the ultimate hopelessness of human attempts to survive the power of hatred and of death? Or is it an affirmation of a greatness within our humanity itself that somehow shines in the midst of that darkness and contains the hint of 
of a possibility, a power greater than death itself. Which of the two? It's a choice. It's the choice of September 11th. is at the heart of all our actions. For civil war and genocide to take place, ultimately it is the individual who commits atrocities. Horrors that stun the mind. They take us to the very limits of comprehension and forgiveness. And yet in the resonant words of John Paul II, forgiveness can purify memory. It can travel through time and history breathing life into the killing fields, into the collective soul of nations, into the lives of its brutalized citizens. No less than any nation, the country of an anguished heart also cries out to forgive and to be forgiven. Personal betrayal can cut as deeply as a machete. Forgiveness can offer hope to these intimate woundings of the soul. So, in the end, forgiveness begins and ends with one person facing another. Friends, strangers, a mother and a child, a father and a son, husband and wife. The decision to forgive, or not, a choice at the heart of our shared humanity. We are made for relationships. Forgiveness emerges as the need to re-establish a broken relationship without which we cannot live. The search for forgiveness is the search for a healing of an ache of the human heart. It is the memory of lost possibilities It is the enormous presence of absence. It is an ache for what could have been and is no more. In fact, the religious notion of hell, what is it? Hell is absolute loneliness. It is the break of all relationships. It means the incapacity to establish a relationship or to have anyone establish a relationship with you. It is, but death is, is nothingness. So the thirst for forgiveness is that fundamental. It is an expression of the, the fear of nothingness. The religions attempt to deal with it, but this ache, this primordial ache, precedes all religions' expressions of it and ways of dealing with it.
was amazing. And we're going to spend a little bit more time afterwards talking about it. I want to give Catherine a chance to share. It's so completely unfair to have to go after that. <laughs> I feel like I've been on multiple retreats in the last couple of minutes and sort of need time to process. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that, that, that film was... It, it sort of captures for me everything that is beautiful about communion and liberation in in my uh, my experience. Um, thank you for that. Um, thank you for having me uh, here tonight. I, uh, as I just expressed, I have great gratitude for communion and liberation. I'm not a member, but my life has been blessed with some friends who are. And that New York encounter that happens every year is a, a thing of beauty. I, um, I also remember at the dawn of, of uh, what was being called the Fortnight for Freedom during the Department of Health and Human Services mandate religious freedom fight um, some years ago that actually is still going on in the courts with the Little Sisters of the Poor and things. There was a July 4th mass and celebration at uh, the Basilica over by Catholic University, and uh, the Holy Spirit was made manifest and palpable on the steps outside. Um, there was a group from Communion and Liberation welcoming people in, full of joy, and uh, it, it really, uh, it really was remarkable. And it was like, like a, a pre-sacrament, you know, celebration. It was, it was what every mass probably should be, right? Um, and so, Monsignor Albacetti, first of all, um, I'm actually staying with the Little Sisters of the Poor during this trip to Washington. And uh, when my friend Sister Constance was showing me to my room earlier today, she remembered how fondly Monsignor Albacetti would uh, uh, would visit his, his how frequently he would visit his mother when she was staying with the Little Sisters of the Poor as one of their residents. Uh, they, they said that he really treated his mother like, like a son should, um, like a Christian should. Should. And now I, I also have to confess to you that I hesitated to say yes to tonight because I am not an expert on Monsignor Albacetti, as some of you are. I'd love to hear all of your stories, and hopefully hopefully I can before the evening is, is up. But, but Lisa, you talked about preserving and extending the legacy, so I guess I'm part of the extension. <laughs> um, and oh my goodness, um, I never met him, but I'm so grateful to him. Um, I'm grateful even just for what I saw tonight and heard tonight. Um, I'm, I'm sure for, for years it was the monthly Magnificat where I first became aware of, uh, of him because there would always be meditations. That's really how I got my regular serving for years of Jusani and Albacete um, in my diet. I, um, I want to say something else about Monsignor Albacete and CL in general. The magnetic power of beauty and truth and goodness always seems to be quite clear, um, almost in every word. Um, I also confess I've been known to joke about not always understanding every syllable of Jasani in particular, that I could not diagram the sentences if I tried, and maybe I need a translator. But there's always something in it, in any little meditation, that draws me into love and faith and hope. Um, that's true about Monsignor Albacetti as well. Take this from something he wrote for Traces magazine in 2001. He's talking about freedom again, which I gather was a, a frequent topic. Freedom is the capacity for perfection, but we know very well that nothing ever satisfies us in such a way that we'll never desire more or something else. This will be so no matter how long we live. Our hearts desire a fulfillment that this life cannot provide. 
That is what we mean when we talk about the infinite or the eternal. Eternal doesn't mean time that doesn't end. It doesn't mean something that is simply not time as we know it. Infinity doesn't mean what it means in mathematics. It means something of an entirely different quality than what is available now. Something absolutely, perfectly fulfilling, filling up my entire capacity for it, and thus making me feel fully free. Freedom, therefore, is my capacity for the infinite, for the eternal. As a result, my freedom is enhanced by those particular choices that truly move me closer to the infinite, and it is diminished by those choices that move me away from it. The problem, of course, is that the path that leads me to infinity does not always appear as the most attractive. The most attractive in this case will not correspond to what my heart really desires. So we need to turn to our deepest convictions, tested by reason, and borne by our experience of the events that awakened in us the desire for infinity and a passion for our ultimate destiny. We need to turn to those concrete realities that we recognize for our ultimate destiny. We need to turn to those concrete realities that we recognize as embodying the memory of the event that disclosed our infinite destiny. For us, of course, this is the memory sustained in the sacramental life of the church, the memory of Christ, who is the revelation of our destiny, celebrated in the sacred liturgy and expressed in the doctrine of faith. This is how the experience of the church becomes the custodian of our freedom. I just think that's so beautiful and important, especially at a time when we are so confused about what freedom is. And you can almost breathe deeper, even as you read it. I feel peace. I feel drawn to the Eucharist. And how about this from an interview he did on religious and religion and ethics news weekly in 2002. He said, the question is when you can't do any more about it, something remains. So then what are you going to do about suffering? How are you going to let it touch your life? How do you respond to it? Suffering itself is a sign of something. It's a sign that you have been violated at the level of your identity. Something should not be. You have a reaction immediately of anger, of wanting to send suffering away. Why? If there's no meaning to life, then the question why doesn't mean anything. You cannot ask why the sun goes up in the morning. Things just happen. And suffering, pain, sorrow, it happens. That's life. You say, that's not true. Something's wrong. That should not be. The anger about suffering is, I think, a wonderful thing because it begins and sustains a demand, a quest. The Bible contains it. The book of Job is all about that. When Job refuses all these visitors who come in to tell him, this is the reason you are suffering or it's your fault or life is like that or you must accept God, he's punishing you. Job says, no, 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 no. It's just not so. And I demand that my vindicator Someone who will show I am right appear. It's great that at the end, God pops up and he doesn't answer any questions. He doesn't tell Job why, but he says, you're right. When we face suffering like that, and especially when we face it and deal with it together with other people, it will bring us to an awareness of and to, men to dimensions of the mystery of human life that are otherwise closed. In the end, I see that it is a frontier to be crossed to a new level of awareness about life, about reality, and about what might lie beyond and behind it all. Again, after reading that, I just feel so much peace. Like he's acknowledged this condition that feels like it should be healed, and he finds the good in the struggle to accept the pain. 
Um, I also feel like I keep needing to go back to that sentence early on in that passage. Suffering is a sign that you have been violated at the level of your identity. Mary Eberstadt has a new book where she identifies something similar. The book is called Primal Screams, and it's about identity politics. She contends that all the screaming right now about so much involving identity is all wreckage from the sexual revolution. People have been hurt so intimately, and they're trying to make sense of it. And so in some sense, they're reconstructing reality so they can cope, right? So what is Christian and Christianity, we are asked tonight. Reading Giussani and Albacete, I think it's quite clear that it is about rejecting being transactional about anything. We're so transactional in so many of our relationships without even knowing it. Also, as a coping mechanism, we feel overwhelmed. It's, um, it's also, in Albacete, quite clear that it involves humor, <laughs> you have to, I laughed out loud reading <laughs> some of the entries in the priest retreat in, the, in what is Christian about in Christianity. It's, um, it's also about seeking to live Eucharistic amazement in the world, really being present to people, um, really living a sacramental life. Um, and just the other day, um, I was reading, as I shared, I do, Magnificat. And the meditation from the day was from St. Therese of Lisieux. And it reminded me so much of Monsignor Alpacetti, who I had just been reading a whole lot of. Um, I wonder if it's some indication that he will be known as St. Alpacetti one day. Um, Lord, I don't know. Uh, I, Lord, I, I know you don't command the impossible. You know better than I do my weakness and imperfection. You know very well that never would I be able to love my sisters as you love them unless you, my Jesus, loved them in me. It is because you wanted to give me this grace that you made your new commandment. Oh, how I love this new commandment since it gives me the assurance that your will is to love me, love in me, all those who command you command me to love. Yes, I feel it when I am charitable. It is Jesus alone who is acting in me. And the more united I am to him, the more also do I love my sisters. When I wish to increase this love in me, and when especially the devil tries to place before the eyes of my soul the faults of such and such sister who is less attractive to me, I hasten to search out her virtues, her good intentions. I tell myself that even if I did see her fall once, she could easily have won a great number of victories, which she is hiding through humility, and that even what appears to me as a fault can very easily be an act of virtue because of her intention." There is in the community a sister who has the faculty of displeasing me in everything in her ways, her words, her character. Everything seems very disagreeable to me. And still she is a holy religious who must be very pleasing to God, not wishing to give in to natural antipathy I was experiencing. I told myself that charity must not consist in feelings but in works. Then I set myself to doing for the sister what I would do for the person I loved the most. Each time I met her, I prayed to God for her, offering him all her virtues and merits. I felt this was pleasing to Jesus, for there is no artist who doesn't love to receive praise for his works. And Jesus, the artist of souls, is happy when we don't stop at the exterior, but penetrating into the inner sanctuary where he chooses to dwell, we admire its beauty." I wasn't content simply with praying very much for this sister who gave me so many struggles, but I took care to render 
her all the services possible. One day at a recreation, she asked it in almost those words, would you tell me, Sister Therese, what attracts you so much toward me? Every time you look at me, I see you smile. (laughs) Ah, what attracted me was Jesus, hidden in the depths of her soul. Jesus who makes sweet what is most bitter. I answered that I was smiling because I was happy to see her. (laughs) It is understood that I did not add that this was from only a spiritual standpoint. (laughs) There's so much more I can say, and and perhaps later during the conversation I will. Um, The moment when um, Albacete most clicked for me when um, was... A number of years ago, I read, maybe for the first time, but I must have reread it because I used to read the New York Times obsessively. He wrote a piece in 2000 in the New York Times Magazine on confession. It was such an example of how we should fearlessly be ourselves in even the most mainstream places. Sometimes we try to be a little hesitant or water it down a little bit, put it in words other people will understand. No, how about just be real, <laughs> you know? And that's what he did. Um and, uh, and I, I think it's a, just a great example of, of uh, the way we should be. And uh, so maybe, maybe I'll, I'll just dare, dare and end with Monsignor Albacetti, pray for us. <laughs> These are trying times. Um, although I, I always add when I'm, when I, uh, when I'm praying for, for those who, who have died, you know, asking for their intercession, I always pray for their souls, too, in case they still need it, um, because that's what they'd want us to do. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Catherine, for for sharing all those beautiful. You you pulled out a lot of beautiful things um, for us to think about from Monsignor. And let's finish with Father Lee. Well, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm honored uh, to to have been asked to to speak tonight. Um, I I have no credentials like the others, um, but what I think the reason why I've I've been asked, I think, is obvious in some ways, because uh, I'm a diocesan priest. I'm from the Archdiocese of Washington, and Lorenzo was a a priest of Washington. And uh, I actually, as as I was being introduced, I, I met the movement just about the same time Lorenzo did. Not that I knew him at all. I mean, I knew of him. I knew of Lorenzo because I knew of friends of mine who were taking classes uh, at the John Paul II Institute of Fam- Marriage and Family. He was a legend before I met him. Um, and so when I did finally meet him, I was a little bit, uh, you know, maybe intimidated by him because he, he's such a, an incredible personality. Um. And in fact, I, I was telling Lisa when we were talking, they said there was a couple of times early on where, you know, Lorenzo um, kind of uh, kind of corrected me. Or there were certain things that, that had happened. Like one time we had a community day and I was preaching and Lorenzo happened to come. It was a mass and a dinner afterwards and I was living at Holy Cross. And I must have been given a, 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 some kind of heartfelt fervor, you know, about Lent and giving up smoking for Lent. Well... Lorenzo slammed me afterwards, being so Pelagian as to give up something like smoking. For like that's all Len is about. And another time, I don't know if I should tell you this, but it, one year it was after the priest, uh, the, the 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 first scandal in 2002, and in Remedy, the, they had asked us for this the great the great meeting that happens in Remedy every summer. 
they asked to have some priests from America speak, and I was one of the asked to do that. But I ended up being very sick during that time. And so after the meeting in Rimini, we were in a car together all the way to La Tuile, and it was hours, and I was miserable. I had a very high temperature. And um, by the time I got there, really, I was thinking, would you guys please... I almost said to them, would you just drop me off at a hospital somewhere? I just feel so bad. Well, we get to the check-in for the hotel at La Tuile, and Lorenzo turns and says, I am very happy because this is the first time in my life, and probably the only time in my life, that I look better than him. <laughs> he was so happy for that. He was so... And it was true. It was probably really true. But what, ha- what, en- what really happened, um, and, and the way that I, I got to know Lorenzo was through these retreats that really came out of a real concern um, and a, a, a gesture to help priests in America. Um, that the first one was probably in 2003, and it was uh, beautiful and hysterical. Every single one of those retreats, he, he did them all the way up until uh, a year or two before he died. Um, and priests would come from all over the place because they knew it was him. Uh, it was a gesture put on by the movement. Um, but Lorenzo, being with him for a couple of days uh, on a retreat, was such um, such a treat just to be with him and to listen to him. Uh, I think um, as, as uh, you know, the other speakers have said, Lorenzo, his great gift in, in thinking about him in these past couple of weeks too and preparing for this, the great gift of Lorenzo is that he becomes, uh, he, he is a reference point for, for everybody, um, whether you, you are, have faith or not, um, because of his ability to uh, communicate the human so freely um, with such uh, uh, humor and intelligence. Uh, but what really strikes us, and I think that the, the way in which we really entered into Lorenzo was um, the awareness of his, um, his own his own humanity and his suffering, um, how he suffered, but how he uh, used that as a way as to 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 um, understand us. I mean, to to allow us to to enter into him, and he brought that to um, he brought us in front of this mystery because he lived this so radically every day. I mean, he 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 expresses this. In his life, I'm sure he had the gift of this brilliant mind um, and an incredible wit, which is a great sign of intelligence, that could draw people to himself. But then you understood that he he really had this great capacity to understand. And it's written about in the book um, by, by Cardinal O'Malley and Carl Anderson and others have mentioned his ability to suffer with you. That you could, he would stand with you, and you know, going to confession with him, you understood uh, that that he was right there with you in it. You know, no, no judgment, no nothing. And I, I, and from my own experience of going to one of the retreats, going to confession to him, and you know, as he's giving the absolution, he goes, yeah, that's it, that's it. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's it. You know, and 
And I'm looking at him thinking, my gosh, what are you saying? Um, and then his moments of, of, of wanting to or, or allowing you to be with him, to enter into him. So I, I, I would be with Lorenzo and I would listen to him and I was always impressed and moved and grateful. Um, wherever he was, he would have a crowd of people around him, usually outside near the ashtray, smoking with a bunch of people, just loving to sit and talk. And one time I was out there with him, a number of times, beautiful. Uh, one retreat that and in 2009 I had to miss a couple of days of because one of my best friends, had a priest who had died, and his funeral was that week. And when I entered into that, we stood aside together outside having a cigarette, and he, he really uh, just said, look, Basically, you know, he, he was identifying with that, the, the sadness and the grief and the suffering with his own life. And when he has to go through all the time what he's carrying, and, and some of you know what, what, he, what his life was like and, and his concerns and across that he was with his brother and other things, um, that you just knew you could just be with him in that, you know, that he, there was an accompaniment. In the past couple of weeks, I was away i i had the privilege of being on a sort of a extended uh retreat a silent retreat in california and i I brought this book with me and i uh, was reading lorenzo's the, the notes from the retreats which these two retreats are very very beautiful and i have to say i took notes during those retreats and i don't even remember them as being this as rich as they are really um and the first one Entitled, uh, "What are you looking for?" is a, a that's a it's a great place to start. The question, the needs of our heart, and Lorenzo is so fantastic in the way that he gets right down to the, the the something we can all relate to. And I love the way that he would say, "You know, I, I don't know what I want, right? I I don't know what it is until he gets to that one sentence of saying, I guess I, I just want to have a good time.' It just comes down to that. He said he's not being trite or superficial." He's, he's identifying something within himself that you can identify with as well. That, uh, you know, what is it that we, we really want? And so you could, you could align yourself with him. And what's fantastic with him, with priests and his ministry and his accompanying us, is because, uh, you know, as priests, we're, we're, we're you know, uh, we, can, we can fall back into the easy categories. We can be functionary. We can take care of other people, but do we take uh, the time to ask these questions for ourselves? And Lorenzo uh, had such credibility because, yes, he has his all of the theology. He's brilliant. And the way that he could tell these stories and who he, he knows and, you know, John Paul II and all the rest. But then he would he would come right back to his own experience and and allowing us to then to enter into him by this friendship and this this tenderness he had for us and then and then help us because we need to i mean really the first thing um lisa had said and maybe in the in that same quote about when he says what i really want is to have a good time and then he says you know the first person it's you yourself that you minister to. It's your own I. That's the most important thing. And I think for, for priests, it's, it's essential. And what we found on those retreats, 
that we were talking to each other about Jesus. It's not like when we get together, priests talk about politics of the church. We talk about bishops, the pope. And today, in our environment right now, we really need a Lorenzo. I just was a couple of days on a convocation with our archdiocese. And all the conversations are going to be um, about, you know, what we're going through in the archdiocese, what's going on with, with our pope. And what we really need is, is someone to, to bring us back to ourselves. And the, the most important thing about, I think, for me, about Lorenzo is something uh, that we, we call he's, he's an authority. And thankfully, in our school community, we're reading this right now. Uh, it just happened to be last night. But uh, although this is helpful. And what does it mean of authority, right? It's not that somebody tells you what to do and you just have to obey. Authority is a, is a place, a person, and a place where you, you experience freedom because your need is taken care of. You, you recognize. He, was, he allowed us and he helped us to, um, to be with our need and our heart's greatest needs and knowing that, he, that Christ corresponds to us. So authority is true or truly experiences as such when it, it ignites my freedom, when it ignites my personal awareness and personal responsibility, my personal awareness and responsibility. Authority is a place where the connection between the needs of the heart and the response Christ gives is clearer, simpler, and more peaceful. The retreat that I really loved to read while I was on, on this retreat is the second one, What is Christian and Christianity? And I had to say, I, I, I kept going back to that question, what is he saying? Where's the answer? You know, is there, is there a, a sentence or two that, what is Christian about Christianity? And, but what's really remarkable, I feel, in this, in this retreat is that from the time he started, for those three days, is like this, it's Lorenzo's own personal, urgent searching for this, trying to understand it, coming back to it again and again. He wasn't just being the professional retreat master he was saying i'm doing this for myself i have to ask this question i love that the quote i don't know if we could say it but you know he says you know what's at stake is my ass you know it's not about theology it's not about all these things it's what you know only the way lorenzo could say it what's at stake is my ass you know I want that urgency for myself i want to live that i want to know what this is mean that who is christ that that has to do with my carnality as he says not just what i think about i want i want that dualism to be obliterated and this is what lorenzo was searching for constantly is is uh, he wants to live this he wants to know what this means where is the resurrection what is the resurrection what has it done what does it do to me what does it do for others and he had the ability um his ability to uh articulate that is a wide open door for all of us and and i think that's why he he is uh so loved and um beloved uh just seeing his pictures now hearing his voice hits you you know uh and what a gift i think i I, you know uh, some of you have been much better friends to him uh and and uh have a a greater I, i grew in my 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 love for him and the fact of him, really, the fact of Lorenzo, 
uh, is is uh, something that I am. I'll say the rest of my life. I'm grateful that I had contact with it. Um, he was, as as Cardinal O'Malley said, in his homily uh, at his funeral, that yes, CL was a gift to Lorenzo. The time of his life. I love the way that Lorenzo said. Look, Giussani didn't give me help me really in any case in my theology, but it, what he helped me with is that this goes from here to my heart. So yes, uh, and it, and CL it, was a great gift to, to Lorenzo. Lorenzo was a great gift to the movement because, um, he, as Catherine said, you know, you need a translator. He was a beautiful, fantastic translation for us of Giussani. Um, so. I'm grateful to be a part of this, and and thank you for that incredible movie. We all want copies, you know. Um, uh, so, hope, I mean, really, really, thank you. I mean, how incredible it is, and and to see how he reverberates, how he's hit, taught so many people that you your experience, Catherine, is uh, is, is amazing, you know, as deep as any of us who have, have ever met him and love him. So, thank you. have a little little more conversation with our panelists. Um, I have to second what both you said about the the um, film. Yeah. It's it's amazing, Helen. It's really I mean I I um I think this is my third time watching it and I, I feel like I ha I was I had the benefit of watching it um, a couple weeks ago and I've been meditating on it. I mean I felt like it was a bit of a retreat too so it's beautiful. <laughs> and your your witness, I have to say, I think it's converted me to agnosticism. <laughs> because no, really, I was so moved by what you had to say, <laughs> and I thought I'm with uh, my heart is with you. Um, so I, I, I guess what I want, I would like you to say more. I'd like to, I'd like to give you a few more minutes to say more about your relationship with Lorenzo. Um, you know, because because you have a you have a great perspective that you're bringing to us, and and um, you know that that drama that you that you lived in the John Paul II in the making of the John II, mm -hmm. John Paul II film, where you were getting to this point where you were just I can't hold mm -hmm. these things together, mm -hmm. and then he comes along and enables you to see the as you said the complexity yeah. of John yeah. Paul II. And so he had this, um, and, and, and the way you put it together, the film together, you see it on, in each of those different films that people are struggling to hold things together. And then Monsignor comes forward and he says something, and somehow it, it's, we're starting to see it yeah. in yeah. a whole picture. So, um, so how would you characterize that? How, what could you say about that ability? Well, that he had? I think it was, I mean, I've it for hours, but... I think that the most uh, powerful connection that I had with him, um, we, yes, he influenced and shaped the thinking of so many of my films, not just these three, but we only saw small sequences of two-hour, three-hour films, but he also shaped my thinking in part around a four-hour series about the Mormons and made me think of 
otherness and and the way we objectify people and caricature them and the fear of the other. I mean, there was not a, a film that, he, sometimes he wouldn't be in a film, but he would help me think through sort of essential questions. And and the forgiveness film, my God, I almost was walking out of that film. How do you film an idea that's so big and no one has, there's no consensus around what it is? Does it come from God? Does it come from man? Is it therapeutic? Is it, you know, aspirational? Are there conditions? You know, what's the unforgivable? He cut right through it in a, in a very sort of untraditional Catholic way. He said, listen, Forgiveness precedes religion. It is that existential ache that we all feel and, and particularly manifest at the end of our lives when we say, I do not want to go into the night unconnected, unreconciled. And he made me, he just gave me a whole other view of that idea that there's very little consensus around what it really means. But I think for me, the most what I, in addition to the humor and the wit and the late night talks and the wine and the, oh, <laughs> going over movies together and books and and our lives, was I and I said it uh, in my in my short talk is that, you know, he had this unique ability to speak to the believers and the unbelievers and all shades of gray in between. And I, I use that word lightly, but I, I mean it. He was a St. Paul, really, to the secular modern world. And, and I think one of the reasons he had that is that he had this very unusual faith, which is on the one hand, which you knew probably much more about than myself as uh, on these retreats, but it was both passionate and visceral as well as endlessly questioning. I mean, mm. he literally, I'm sure you've all heard it. He said, I get up every morning, and I have to ask myself, what is it that I believe? And so those are quite remarkable sort of polarities. And so he was able to reach, therefore, that huge range of, you know, the believer, the unbeliever, the, you know, the, the seeker, the disenchanted. Uh, and and then I also think, and I'll sort of end with this, I, I he, he and I used to talk about that bedrock belief of his, and this is probably of greater use for the agnostic and the seeker than someone of truly settled faith. Uh, but his faith really was inductive, and he celebrated and embraced you know, what he would call those signals of transcendence, those intimations of, of infinity and transcendence, rooted in our daily life. Uh, and, and, and they were there. And, and he would talk about if you're yearning for beauty, that's a part of it. If you're yearning for justice, that's part of it. And sometimes late at night we would talk about these other sort of signals that he, 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 he respected and felt we should tend to. One of them is the propensity for order. He talked about that a lot. You know, not just our ordering principles in the world, but, but when a mother is comforting a child at night, uh, saying, all shall be well. And, of course, the mother knows that all shall not be well in life. It's going to be up and down and around, and yet is that mother lying? No, because that mother is, in his idea, in his view, trusting 
to reality and to a reality that lies beyond. And, and so that ordering principle he saw as a signal of that beyond. And he used to talk about play. And we all know how he loved, how playful he was. But he said it's more than just having a good time. Play in itself is, its intention is joy. And, and when you enter, we all know this, particularly as adults, and we're sort of kind of going back to childhood and the deathlessness of childhood when we're playing and getting lost in a game or even watching one on television and, and the joy is there. And he, you know, he really felt that play in and of itself was a signal of and pointing to something far beyond. So those conversations that I had with him that I'm sure he had with so many seekers and agnostics and people open to questions were of just extraordinary value, you know, and so anyway, I've talked too much, but that no, was... Yeah. No, no, not at all. <laughs> that, that was... The talking that, all no. night thing we want you to do. <laughs> the best conversations were one in the morning with him. Absolutely. I think we're all wishing we could have been part of your soirees. <laughs> um, well, you know, and here, here I want to kind of jump to you, Catherine, because... Um, you know, you're coming at this from a little bit different perspective yeah. from that the Helen is. For sure. Uh, yeah, so cultural commentator, you speak a lot on church issues. Um, I, I, um, I'm curious about, you know, what, what um, you talked a lot about what you found attractive, Monsignor. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything in this I almost want to call it Monsignor's unsettled faith, but I don't want that to sound irreverent, but in the sense that, and as a contrast to what you said, Helen, you were dealing with a lot of people in your, in your, um, in your film about John Paul II, John Paul II that had a very kind of strict, settled faith, you know, and a very, very, very contained conservative view on John Paul II. And then the thing about Monsignor is he has the faith, but there's something open in him, something <coughs> vulnerable Absolutely. in him. And I'm wondering, do you see in that an entry point for some of these conversations? That, for everyone. Yeah. For these conversations yeah. that we're having totally. um, constantly here yeah. in Washington, D.C. And, and, and nationwide. I mean, what, what do you think? Well, a couple of thoughts. First of all, I love that phrase, settled faith, because if we're honest, nobody has settled faith, right? It's the, This is a journey. <laughs> and and, um, and I, I think we're... we're we're both not honest about our it about ourselves to ourselves sometimes, and then we give the impression to other people that well she has it together you know no I don't you know, and so uh, one of the things that is most attractive about Monsignor Albacetti is he doesn't pretend you know and including I think we pretend to ourselves sometimes so we can keep going through the motions and be functionaries and right and I I do when you were talking father I was I was just remember. Sometimes I wonder. Some of the healthiest priests I know are are members of community. Have some contact with community and liberation, and and I, I say that as someone. Who, <laughs> I'm not one of them. See, he's proving my point. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because there is something that's just comp something very a healthy transparency mm. about about Monsignor Albacetti about what you were just talking about. I mean, there's such a danger. And and particularly now, what's going on both in the church, in politics, mm -hmm. in the world, you know, of the, I mean, there's so much that was unsettling and, mm -hmm. 
and and leads to to added anxiety. Like we need more of that, right? And um, and and once once you're just honest about your own struggles in it, you know, um, and you're not obsessively talking about whatever just came out of Rome or the president's tweets or you know, and you're talking about Jesus Christ together and this common journey. And I was one thing as someone who did not know Monsignor Albacetti and did not know the struggles he was going through. I read him or, or watch your beautiful movie, and yes, I get them completely. And and you know, I was I was so moved by so much of it. As somebody, I, I'm cer- certain I'm not the only one who was in New York on 9/11. I thought that was going to be the the the, the one that's going to make me tear up the most, you know. Um, but but actually, at the end, the loneliness, right? I mean, you, if, if, if you live in an urban setting, right, mm-hmm. you see it all the time. We see it in our families. We see it with people who come to us with their struggles, you know. It's everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you, see, you see both in his words and, and having the blessing of, of actually seeing him there tonight, how this all affected him, right? Because um, one of the things that, that Monsignor Albacetti sort of, like, um, overflows with in his writing is this sense of of humanity and and what it is and what the suffering is and what the the desires are even when you don't want to know what they are and if if we could just imitate that a little bit more mm-hmm. you know i i think it first of all it will help our own lives um but it will it will make us so much more of a welcome door you know sometimes um i frequently encounter in in urban settings uh you know I'll, I'm I'm always getting kicked out of churches <laughs> because they have to lock the doors because there's nobody to write, and and sometimes I just feel like so many of us Christians are locked doors, you know, um, and uh, and uh, Monsignor Albacetti offers something. I think CL in general offers something that is the opposite of the locked door, mm-hmm. and so uh, yeah, I think there's so much to learn from, and I'm really grateful that I was forced to read a lot of Albacetti <laughs> in the last couple of months. <laughs> You know, one of the, the points and, and that I wanted to ask you about was actually the, the point in the film where Monsignor um, is talking about the terrorists. Mm-hmm. That was the, the hardest part for me, yeah. watching, of, of everything that you had there. The, and, and difficult because my, my gut reaction is to say, that, that's not religion. That was not... But and, and in some ways we know there there's a way in which there there's there's something deficient and he points to that. But at the same time, his willingness, the open door, his willingness to say, I recognize that that desire for the absolute, I and I and it's mine. Like to to, to yeah, own yeah. that was stunning. I thought and and to. I think to bring some and of that courageous. into our discourse. Yes, it was. He got some person. pushback yeah, from, bad. from from <laughs> some people in the in the religious communities on it. It wasn't. Uh, oh, I'm no, sure. You know, and he really nailed it. Oh, I can it. hear it. They're probably the, uh, Albacetti's losing it. You know, uh, <laughs> Albacetti, <laughs> or he's gone Hollywood. <laughs> 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 gone Hollywood. <laughs> but it's that lust for the absolute. He circled around mm. that. I mean, I called him oh. the day after it all happened and said let's let's go have coffee let's talk before i even knew i wanted to make a a film about what was happening and um because when frontline finally called me they said stay yep stay away from politics try, think about this in your usual terms you know f- sort of questions of faith and doubt and whether there's any relevance and 
and for any of you who lived in New York, as I'm a, a New Yorker, it was really an extraordinary time in New York for many reasons, but one of them was in this secular city, not completely, but very secular, everybody was talking about religion. Mm. You go to the deli and people were talking theodicy questions, suffering, and and they weren't they didn't have the language that Alba said had, but they were talking about the darkness at the heart of mm. religion. That was something they were struggling with. And you couldn't go to a cocktail party. You couldn't you'd never bring up religion in most in most cocktail parties. That's all people wanted to talk to, mm. you know, mm. about uh, as well as politics too, who 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 are they and why do they hate mm. us so much. But there were these big questions and he jumped on on them and he went to the heart of, you know that the last act of, of you know that lust for the absolute and he circled that and looked at it and owned it yes That's he, what owned you, it. he owned yes, it yes exactly he owned it so so i'm gonna jump to you now father lee i i want to um, we had a great conversation, which you alluded to in your talk, about about the priest retreats, and and I, I kind of want to take this to a different level, and in the sense of um, of this idea of the I, the self, this quote that you brought up in the first retreat, and I'm and I had written a few a few of these quotes out from Monsignor, um, because because he's because so he's speaking to priests now, and he's saying you yourself are the first person you minister to. And then later, because he, he's grappling with this question, what are you looking for? He says, the question, what are you looking for, is addressed to the heart. And that means to the carnal self. And I love this phrase, the carnal self. And then, a little bit further on, we must minister first to ourselves. So he's saying this to the priests. To ourself, to our I. Only if it happens there in a carnal way will it spread. And you know, coming back to these questions that we're all facing um, in the church and the world, and the and particularly the crises, where our language, our 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 conversation, just seems to end up always being political. You know, it's it's the it's the stuff of of which tweets are made. You know, and um and here is this challenge from Monsignor to make something carnal and carnal, enfleshed. You know, and so what is that? What does that mean? Like, how do you how do you see that as as being played out in um, in your life, in the life of a priest? You know, in in, in you know, what does that mean? Um, I I don't have a quick answer. I th- I think that's the the question that he was posing that was so important because um, he ca- he keeps going back to. But I, I loved I love when he he talks about and. and Talking about how he can get into these questions, he can open up. It's not because he doubted. He had a tremendous certainty. Mm-hmm. The certainty enabled him to be free, to, to recognize the truth wherever it is. So he, he could be free in that, right? So I loved uh, uh, when he talks about this whole thing about what is, because our retreats were always, for most many years, our retreats were Easter week. So we would just finish Easter get on a plane or travel and go to these retreats and um, he would use often uh, the Holy Father's uh, homily for the Easter vigil because um, it was a perfect jumping off point but one of the criticisms was he's referring to the homily that only happened 48 hours before did he really prepare for this? <laughs> <laughs> 
know, it, it's incredible. It was beautiful, but um, <laughs> but he would. But but the fact is, he he kept the carnality part of that. So so I think it was the first of the two retreats that are in this book, where he's really he's really talking about what the heck is this that flesh flesh and blood. He quotes one of the saints: "Do not worry, flesh and blood is redeemed." You know, so this the carnality is. There's got to be something about me, so we don't divide ourselves up. Like I have a spiritual self, and I have this, you know, this other part of me, um, and that's fascinating to me. That's what I, I, I want that. And so, but here he is, talking about, you know, somehow. And I, one of the things he says about how do I love God who's everywhere? And I, 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 but the fact that he's saying this question, well, I don't know how to love somebody who's everywhere because everybody I love is some place, one place, right? So, I mean, just ask these kinds of questions, which is fascinating. Or, or the question about, you know, whether he would, he, would, he would exasperate, he said, his pastor. You all know this, but he would say, by asking him the question, is there pizza in heaven? <laughs> and the pastor would say, well, that what you love about pizza will be in heaven. He goes, I want the damn pizza. Yes. I don't want pizza yes. in heaven. Yes. I don't want a spiritual. I want a pizza from Domino's. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so this, this thing about, this is a fascinating thing that he would, I mean, who talks like this? Right? right? Who, who, who talks about these questions, right? Where we get very cerebral about, because he, he would say, that quote uh, when he was talking about um, Hazel Motes, you know, from Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor, on the bus, looking at this woman, staring her down, and says, uh, I, I, I suppose you think you've been saved, right? And it, the answer to the question, are you saved? He says, as soon as you say, yes, I believe in the resurrection, I've been saved, because you've lost it. If it's, if it's not something that's coming from, you know, rooted in your Self, not just a theological answer. It's like, so the fact that he's he's bringing up these kind of questions, which makes you go, oh my gosh, what does this really mean? And but that's what's fascinating to me. If everything about me can be saved, right. everything, everything, and it's not just okay. I'm good here on Sundays, but what did I do Saturday night? You know, we we struggle with that, and and. Uh, and the potential for just the most ordinary human experiences, like a Anything. fabulous Domino's pizza, yes. that he could be having great no, conversation absolutely. with you about, with the right pizza. He could turn to you and say, and, and he has on other occasions, me like he said, this is pointing towards something. It's oh, ab- no. you know, no, not no. just the pizza. It's pointing. It's, and and it's like, yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's. And it's not because those, he was he was clever. No, or he, to he felt it. He felt this moment is so rich, so overflowing, yeah. and it's a, it's prefiguring something more. And and uh, I love that. I've heard that too. That pizza in heaven. I want Domino's. Well, he talked I know. I, I, there are many of those. He oh, about <laughs> have you read this? Have you read? He, yeah. he, t- he, he told your whole story about yeah. your 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 party and. Uh. Yeah, but he actually he actually didn't. He, he I I challenged him on his interpretation. Uh, I, really uh, okay. I did. I said you were you were writing to a different audience, but the truth was <laughs> what what I have just told. We need no consolation. We're we're all going to be looking forward to Helen Newton's book. (laughs) He kind of sheepishly said, "Well, it was better Um, written my way." (laughs) Well, this this was a fabulous conversation, and I'm sure that we're going to continue it as we as we leave here. But I want to thank all three of you for this amazing. Thank Thank you.